The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love that lasts forever know His hope and sure salvation I will trust in Him Oh, the world falls around me I rest and know that He has found me Christ, the rock, is my Welcome all to Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, Pastor is an acrostic which stands for Preaching All Salvation Through One Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. In this episode, and by God's grace, episodes to follow, we revisit a popular topic wherein we look at various apparent, supposed Bible contradictions presented by atheists, skeptics, and humanists. As before, we will look at them against what the Bible says in context, according to proper exegesis, using the languages in question, correct grammar, the culture of the day, and most importantly, the prism of spiritual discernment given by God to those who truly desire to understand his revelation of himself and his relationship to man. As a prelude to answering any apparent Bible contradictions, if you as a listener have not done so already, Listening to the introductory episode regarding questions about contradictions will be an indispensable prologue to fully understanding, or more importantly, answering 
any question or apparent contradiction which exists. Therefore, I will have to rely from this point forward on the listener to faithfully adopt the biblical posture of the Berean Bible student who is willing and able to do their own respective homework in order to avoid the pitfalls inherent from failing to do so. So far in the episodes to date, we have examined and answered 30 questions regarding Bible contradictions from our old friend, Mr. Ash, the atheist, skeptic, and humanist. In this episode, we continue to help Mr. Ash with his various questions regarding the veracity and consistency of God's Word, the Bible. With this in mind, let us consider addressing the following questions about apparent Bible contradictions put forth by Mr. Ash. For our next randomly selected question, Mr. Ash asks, Does God punish offspring for the sins of their parents or not? In order to construct this supposed contradiction, Mr. Ash quotes the following passages. Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, quote, Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, unquote. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 9, quote, Thou shalt not bow down thyself unto them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me." Unquote. Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. Quote, and the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord... The Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, and upon the children's children, unto the third and to the fourth generation." Unquote. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22, quote, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive." Unquote. Mr. Ash then compares the above to the following for his supposed contradiction. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20, quote, The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the Father bear the iniquity of the Son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him." Unquote. And finally, Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16, quote, The fathers shall not be put to death for the children, neither shall the children be put to death for the fathers. Every man shall be put to death for his own sin." Unquote. Now, we are going to answer and resolve this supposed contradiction. However, 
Before we start, I would more importantly like the listener to pay careful attention and make a note of a critical issue which will reveal the true intent, the sincerity, and the integrity of Mr. Ash's scholarship. In the first quote from Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, we read again, quote, Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, unquote. In this case, Mr. Ash is apparently too busy too lazy, or too unconcerned to quote the verse immediately following this, namely Exodus chapter 20, verse 6, which says this, quote, And showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments, unquote. So, in this case, had Mr. Ash been paying attention he would learn in context that God punishes and or rewards people, whether they be parents or offspring, based upon each person and their faith relationship and obedience to God or lack thereof. This should in fact be no surprise to Mr. Ash, since in fact this is the overall theme and moral of God's word in context. But perhaps this is just an innocent oversight by Mr. Ash. So, next we have Deuteronomy chapter 5 verse 9, where again we read, quote, Thou shalt not bow down thyself unto them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me." Unquote. So here again we have a mirror copy of Exodus chapter 20 verse 5. And just coincidentally, in the verse immediately following again, i.e. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 10, we read this, quote, And showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments, unquote. So, it's very odd that for the second time, Mr. Ash with all of his attention to detail and experience and gathering evidence and facts, misses a verse, not once, but twice, which again gives the same answer to the same question to which Mr. Ash claims God and his word are so lacking. Following this, we now have Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, which read, quote, And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundance in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children 
and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation, unquote. Here, in the case of this verse, the answer to Mr. Ash's dilemma is within the very same verse which he himself quotes, namely, God is abundant in his mercy, grace, and forgiveness for thousands regarding iniquity and sin. Likewise, God visits iniquity upon fathers and their children unto the fourth generation. In other words, God is consistent and sovereign to his nature and word. Where there is iniquity and sin, God will visit just punishment and condemnation upon those who are guilty according to his justice, righteousness, and holiness. At the same time, God demonstrates his perfect will to demonstrate mercy, grace, forgiveness, long-suffering, and goodness to whom he wills according to his mercy, love, grace, and kindness. So we see in this verse both mercy and punishment, either one of which flows from the ultimate faith relationship which exists between each person and God or the lack thereof. The fact that we are on a correct track here is verified by Mr. Ash when he himself quotes 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22, which says, quote, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive, unquote. The fact that Mr. Ash quotes this verse as a supposed contradiction only serves to truly demonstrate the depth of Mr. Ash's lack of spiritual discernment and inability to comprehend the things of God due to Mr. Ash being lost and given over to a reprobate mind. The above verse is not a contradiction but rather it is the nucleus of the gospel. Had Mr. Ash not cut class, ditched, and gone to sleep instead, he would realize that the events of Genesis 3 have placed every man, woman, and child in every generation under the just punishment of sin and rebellion against God, according to Romans 3 and other passages. God holds each and every person responsible for their own respective sin as stated. At the same time, God chooses to exercise His sovereign will to show mercy, forgiveness, grace, long-suffering, and goodness, which is also in connection to God's grace as well as each person's faith and obedience. So, apart from Christ and his finished work and his imputed righteousness, every human in every generation will find just punishment from God due to Adam and Eve's disobedience and our resultant fallen nature as well as our rebellion against God. At the same time, those who are found in Christ by God's grace through faith will be given a new nature and will be made alive forevermore by Christ's finished work and righteousness. There is no contradiction here. 
only restoration and resolution made possible by God and his grace. Next, we have Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20, which says the following, quote, The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him, unquote. So in this case, doing the research, we are amazed and dumbfounded to discover that Mr. Ash has left out not one, but two verses which answer his own question. In the first case, we have Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 19, where, as if God anticipated Mr. Ash, God says the following, quote, Yet say ye, Why doth not the Son bear the iniquity of the Father, when the Son hath done that which is lawful and right, and hath kept all my statutes, and hath done them, he shall surely live? Unquote. Following this, in the verse Mr. Ash quotes, we learn just exactly as has been stated and ignored selectively by Mr. Ash that, quote, the soul that sinneth, it shall die, unquote. Further, regarding sin and iniquity, whether it be the Father or the Son, the sin and iniquity in question lies with the one committing said sin and iniquity. Lastly, those who do what is lawful and right will surely live. Now, the second verse, which Mr. Ash conveniently leaves out, is Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 21, immediately following, which says, quote, But if the wicked will turn from all his sins that he hath committed, and keep all my statutes, and do that which is lawful and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die, unquote. So, once again, here we learn in context that if Mr. Ash or any other wicked person will turn, I repent of their sin and iniquity, and exercise honor and faith toward God, that that person, regardless of what generation or what their parent or parents have done, they will live. Finally, we have Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16, which says, quote, The fathers shall not be put to death for the children, neither shall the children be put to death for the fathers. Every man shall be put to death for his own sin, unquote. So, again, we have the answer to Mr. Ash's question, which is as already stated, that in terms of the issue of salvation, every human being is responsible ultimately for their own sin and rebellion, or lack thereof, and is punished or rewarded accordingly. As a practical matter, as we look at the horizontal affairs of man, it can be said that the 
quote-unquote sons or descendants can and do often suffer or prosper as an axiomatic reality as a result of the decisions that we, i.e. the parents, make today. Hence, as an example, a parent might choose to live an extremely promiscuous lifestyle wherein they have absolutely no regard for the respect, the honor, or any aspect of marriage or of the opposite sex, much less the honor that we should show toward God and His creation ordinance of marriage. In this case, without repentance, if rebellion toward God continues in this matter, our individual salvation is at serious risk. At the same time, the consequences of such behavior will, to one degree or another, have an effect on our children. They might, for example, devalue marriage, sexual relations, attitudes towards the opposite sex, and worst of all, their own respective fear and awe of God. Also, finances, property, extended family, employment, and a myriad of things can and likely will be affected both for the parents and for the children, for those people who are in rebellion in such a matter. So, Yes, each individual is responsible for their own sin. Yet, at the same time, the sins which we commit or omit will also have a practical ripple effect on our children, our family, our community, and our nation as a whole. The real question here is, why does Mr. Ash obviously pick and choose which verses he will quote and or leave out to form his supposed contradiction, objection, and or question? At this point, having purposely and selectively omitted four important, key, crucial verses which are literally immediately before or immediately after the verse Mr. Ash quotes, it should be clear that Mr. Ash is being deliberately deceptive. It should also be clear that since Mr. Ash has the necessary training and expertise to do unbiased, conscientious research on a subject, that based upon such glaring, intentional, obfuscation and misstatement that Mr. Ash is not concerned with any meaningful and truthful treatment of the subject of God's Word. Instead, as has been the theory from the start, Mr. Ash has a preconceived, priori-based assumption of his own truth and reality regarding God and the Bible and will do whatever it takes to mislead, misdirect, and confuse as many as possible. As to why Mr. Ash would be motivated to do such, as also theorized, 
I would submit that the reason Mr. Ash does what he does regarding God and his word is ultimately in an effort to destroy as much of God's authority as possible so that Mr. Ash can feel more justified and have greater freedom in his own mind to do what is right in his own eyes rather than being held accountable to God and his word. Up next for our next randomly selected question, Mr. Ash asks, does God allow name-calling or not? In order to construct this apparent contradiction, Mr. Ash quotes the following verses. Matthew chapter 5, verse 22, quote, But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire." Unquote. Mr. Ash then quotes the following verses, which supposedly demonstrate a contradiction. Matthew chapter 23, verse 17, quote, Ye fools and blind, for whither is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifieth the gold? Unquote. Psalm chapter 14, verse 1, quote, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good, unquote. Now, predictably, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 22, Mr. Ash forgets that the quote which appears here is from Jesus, who is God in the flesh. In this quote, Jesus is speaking to mankind and saying that since mankind cannot in and of himself know with ontological certitude the heart of another human, then mankind is incapable of making unilateral discernment and judgment with certitude about the wisdom and value of other humans apart from the ultimate authority of God and his word. However, as we move to the quote of Matthew chapter 23, verse 17, Mr. Ash completely misses the fact that the one again who is using the label quote-unquote fools and quote-unquote blind is Jesus, who again is God in the flesh. Since Jesus is God, then he knows with certitude the thoughts and intents of every person's heart. Jesus would, by virtue of this, be in a position to know with complete authority who is a fool and who is blind and who is not. So, whatever judgment Jesus makes is both accurate and truthful as to the reality of the matter. Moving to the quote in Psalm chapter 14, verse 1, this is a quote from the psalmist David, who is inspired by God, not about any particular specific person, 
but rather anyone in general who in fact says in their heart that there is no God. Because since God declares in multiple places that he is the only source of salvation, redemption, and eternal life, and he is the one and only God, then anyone who reasons in their heart that there is no God would qualify their line of belief as foolish as an axiomatic reality. By extension, the one who maintains such foolish reasoning, in spite of God's many evidences of himself to the contrary, would likewise qualify the one reasoning thus as a quote-unquote fool. This proclamation of being foolish and or a fool is by God, not man. In the end, we understand that Mr. Ash cannot abide the existence of an infinite God who knows all things, is all-powerful, and who is the ultimate authority of all things. However, since this is the truth and reality of things, Mr. Ash is just going to have to get over it and live with the fact that God, and not Mr. Ash, is in control. As far as whether or not God's people are allowed to call names or not, the answer depends on what Mr. Ash is defining as quote-unquote names. In the end, God's people are called to be holy as God is holy. To this end, God gives his people, his spirit, a new nature implanted through the new birth by a faith relationship with Jesus. Consequently, those who are truly God's people will have God's discernment to label things in the same way which God's word in context labels things. So, if God and his word labels some attitude, belief, or behavior as foolish, then based upon God's word, God's people have the mandate and authority to likewise label such things as foolish. Where God's word is silent or neutral, then God's people should allow God to discern and act on the matter, while God's people remain quiet and focused on those issues where God's word is clear. For our next apparent contradiction, Mr. Ash asks, Is God singular or plural? In order to achieve this supposed contradiction, Mr. Ash quotes the following verses. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, quote, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, unquote. Mr. Ash then compares uh, the above verse to the following verses for his supposed contradiction. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, quote, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, 
and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth." Unquote. Also, Genesis chapter 3, verse 22, quote, And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is to become as one of us, to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever, unquote. And finally, 1 John chapter 5, verse 7, quote, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one, unquote. Here, to be blunt, Mr. Ash's problem is that he suffers from the delusion that in order for there to be a God, Mr. Ash must be able to completely ontologically understand every aspect of God with utter certitude and clarity. Mr. Ash must be able to place God on an operating table and dissect God as he would a frog and carefully label every bone, muscle, and organ. The only paradox for Mr. Ash is that if God were equal to or lesser than man, then God would not be God at all and Mr. Ash would dismiss God on that basis. So, when Mr. Ash complains that he must be able to completely understand God without any question, Mr. Ash is being disingenuous and dishonest with us and himself. Instead, for God to be the God of the Bible who is eternal, infinite, omnipotent, omnipresent, and an omniscient being, then by definition, man any man who is finite is going to be unable to completely comprehend God by definition. If, in fact, God is God, then we would expect that man will have difficulty grasping the complete nature and essence of God in all of his attributes. Likewise, we would expect that human language regardless of which language, would be problematic and would fall tragically short of being able to fully capture the nature and essence of who and what God is. Lastly, God himself predicts in his word, and we see ample evidence throughout history to support the axiomatic reality that those who rebel against or deny God will, by virtue of their absence of a relationship, be incapable of knowing God to the same degree. Thus, in the end, it is frankly no surprise that Mr. Ash would have difficulty knowing and understanding God, since that has never been his desire to begin with. Nevertheless, to those who have received adoption by His grace through faith, God reveals Himself to us and does not hide His nature. So, for example, in the first quote in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, 
which is the Jewish Shammai, saying, quote, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, unquote. The Hebrew word translated God is the word Elohim. The word Elohim is always a plural proper noun. The word translated one is the Hebrew word ekad, which means one or united. The Bible's use of both plural nouns and words which connotate the oneness or unity of God are fully in keeping with the theological doctrine of the Trinity. The Bible is replete with examples of the doctrine of the Trinity and the manifestations of God's nature and person from cover to cover. Mr. Ash's appeal to his own confusion, ignorance, and finite understanding and logic are not an argument which undermines or disproves the Trinity. Instead, Mr. Ash's ignorance is actually a verification of the premise and reality that God is greater than Mr. Ash and his supposed wisdom and knowledge. This is again what we would expect of a God who is God. When Mr. Ash quotes the remaining citation passages of Genesis chapter 1 verse 26, Genesis chapter 3 verse 22, and 1 John chapter 5 verse 7, Mr. Ash actually proves our theory and simultaneously destroys his own. In Genesis chapter 1 verse 26, the words quote us unquote and quote are unquote both refer back to the word quote unquote God, which again is the Hebrew plural proper noun Elohim. This does not contradict with Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4, the Jewish Shammai, but in keeping with a proper translation of Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4, it in fact harmonizes together. Likewise, with the quote-unquote us and the quote-unquote God, i.e. Elohim, in Genesis chapter 3 verse 22. Finally, in 1 John chapter 5 verse 7, we read, quote, for there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one, unquote. So here, in accordance with the principle of progressive revelation, we have a fuller revelation of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Word, i.e. the Son, Jesus, who according to John 1 was the quote-unquote Word, and the Holy Ghost, blessed God, three in one. So, Mr. Ash can complain and feign ignorance all he wants. Mr. Ash can ask and make as many spurious arguments as he likes based upon circular reasoning, undistributed middle terms, categorical fallacies, silence, straw man, false cause, misery, ad hominem, hidden assumptions, self-contradictory, or out-of-date example arguments. 
Regardless of the shell game Mr. Ash plays, Mr. Ash is simply being purposely dishonest and disingenuous at the outset. The problem is not that there is a contradiction or that Mr. Ash cannot understand God. The problem is that Mr. Ash does not want to submit to God or to be responsible to him. Thus, Mr. Ash ridicules the Bible and the existence of God so that in doing so, he can feel better about what he wants to do as being right in his own eyes. In conclusion, once we resign ourselves to the fact that God is beyond our finite intellect and comprehension, there is no problem. Once we acquiesce to the ontological and economical aspects of the eternal triune Godhead, then the various and typically sophomoric musings of Mr. Ash are revealed for the vacuous nonsense which they are. This being said, there is once again no contradiction here regarding the nature and essence of God. There's only Mr. Ash pretending to comprehend all time and eternity in every possible dimension with arrogant ontological certitude when in fact he is still lost in the confines of his own finite sandbox. In all, to date, in this series, we have in each case serious questions posed by various individuals who hold themselves out to be scholars, critical thinkers, intellectuals, and the like who collectively fall under the pseudonym of Mr. Ash. These and others are questions which individually and collectively serve as the basis by which we are intended to come to the conclusion that the Bible is not God's word, but rather a collection of myths and fables, only to be believed by the simple-minded and the gullible. However, in truth, these 33 and a myriad remaining others are nothing more than apparent contradictions which exist and remain largely, if not exclusively, due in fact to Mr. Ash's inability or unwillingness to do his research, coupled with his unwillingness to open his mind and heart to God and his word. This concludes this episode. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening.